Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's Chess Life magazine cover story. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which includes One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, where Dan Lucas talks to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, hosted by our women's program director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our assistant director of national events, Pete Cargianis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or you can subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Today's guest on Cover Stories with Chess Life is the author of our July cover story, or perhaps better put, package of cover stories. He's also in many ways its subject, as is reflected by his presence on the cover in a magisterial photo by Ian Spanner. International master John Donaldson has done almost everything there is to do in the world of chess. Becoming an international master in 1983, Donaldson has been a successful player, author, and team captain piloting American teams in international play since at least 1986. For 20 years, Donaldson ran the chess room at the Mechanics Institute in San Francisco. Now retired, we'll have to find out what lies ahead for him. The author of at least a dozen books, his newest, Bobby Fischer and His World, is the nominal subject of our July cover story. John talks about the origins of the project, what he has learned since the book was published, and what Fischer mysteries remain unsolved. Perhaps a listener can help solve them. An excerpt of the book is also included in the issue. We speak to John today at his home in the Bay Area. International Master John Donaldson, welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life. How are you today? I'm doing fine. Thank you, John. So let's talk about this cover story and this this long, ongoing Fisher project you've been working on for so many years. Um, I mean, obviously, Bobby Fisher is a critical character in the history of chess and especially American chess, but what is it for you that makes him so fascinating and, and, and worthy of devoting so much of your life to his study? Well, I think that, uh, uh, you know, the fact that in many ways that, you know, he was was such a great player and he's the only world champion that didn't lose his title. So in a sense, you know, I mean, every world champion, uh, from Steinitz onwards, has uh, had a distinguished career, obviously. But at some point along the line, whether they got older or somebody stronger uh, just came along, uh, they lost their title. And uh, one of the things that makes uh, Fisher unique is that uh, he had this short run of of perfection, if you will, uh, from 1970 to 72. And then he was basically gone. I I, I don't consider the 1992... uh, rematch with Spassky to be part of his uh, regular career. But if you uh, look at that stretch from 1970 to 72, uh, you know, you couldn't ask for a more brilliant uh, run. In many ways, he reminds me of uh, the baseball pitcher, uh, Sandy Koufax, who was equally brilliant and equally short-lived. So how did you, how did you get started doing this research? I mean, the, the, the project's been going on for, for many years now. Um, what, what, how did you first get hooked into it? Uh, well, 
you know, like many uh, players that started in 1972, it was the mashing uh, Reykjavik that was uh, uh, sort of uh, the, the, the spark that transitioned me from uh, a guy who played with his friends and played it in school to uh, venturing down to the Tacoma Chess Club and uh, starting off on, on my adventure. Uh, I would say that uh, in terms of researching Fisher's career, it first started when I wrote a book called uh, Legend on the Road. And that was about his uh, 1964 uh, transcontinental uh, tour, which took him uh, from New York as far uh, west as San Francisco. And uh, he hit approximately 40 cities on his tour. It was it was a sort of exhibition tour that a lot of the great players in the past, like Lasker and Capablanca and Alkine, had all done in the United States. But after the Second World War, those sort of tours started to dry up and I would say, you know, there was Ryshevsky and Horowitz still doing them in the 1950s. But by the early 1960s, uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, chess clubs were not the primary focus and uh, weekend tournaments became more uh, uh, prevalent. And uh, the possibility of seeing great players up close, uh, you know, became more of a normal thing than just a, a rare occurrence. And uh, so at any rate, that book, uh, Legend on the Road, uh, 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 got me interested because a lot of the people I talked to that had participated in those exhibitions, whether playing Fisher or uh, organizing the exhibition or taking him out to a meal afterwards or, or driving him from one city to the next, uh, the, uh, the picture they, they painted of, of Fisher uh, was one much different uh, then, uh, you know, Fisher uh, is often portrayed, you know, the, the dark side, the post-72 uh, Fisher who kind of uh, uh, wanders off into the wilderness. That really wasn't the Fisher that they remembered at all. He was quite a different person in the 1960s. You uh, you kind of jumped the gun here because I was going to ask you about the other books later, but uh, we might as well do it now. This, this book, uh, Bobby Fisher and His World, um, it, it's really sort of the culmination of, of a long publishing stretch devoted to Fisher. You, so you had a legend on the road, uh, the unknown Bobby Fisher. Um, and then there were these series of uh, Amazon Kindle books, um, which sort of, uh, I mean, you probably should describe them, but I mean, just a, a vast richness of primary sources and games and, and all sorts of material. Yes. Yeah, so I tried to do it sort of uh, systematically. And so uh, one of the books, uh, uh, was uh, devoted to uh, his non-tournament games. So this was his exhibition uh, tour uh, outside of the 1964 one. For example, uh, in 1971, after his match with Tigran uh, Petrosian, uh, he made a tour of Argentina for the better part of a month that took him to approximately 20 cities. And uh, in each of these cities, he played players from A-class to... 23, 2400, and uh, he only played 20 of them at a time. And uh, uh, this exhibition tour is uh, pretty much unknown, but for the fact that when Fisher's possessions were taken from him, uh, when the, the, the storage locker was uh, auctioned off, uh, he had copies of all the score sheets of the opponents that he faced. Uh, the way it worked was much like playing in the USCF tournament. There, there were carbon score sheets used, and he got to keep the good half, the white side, the top half, and the carbons. So they should have uh, 
you know, hopefully they're still out there somewhere floating around and still in good condition. Uh, but that was the sort of thing I was hoping to preserve. And uh, I, I succeeded to some extent. I, I was able to recreate the tour and I found some games, but but nowhere near the 400 plus that Bobby played on that, uh, that, that visit to Argentina. So uh, that's one of the books is about all of his non-tournament games. Another one was all of Fisher's writings. And uh, everybody knows, of course, uh, I-16 memorable games and uh, uh, Bobby Fisher teaches chess. And uh, some people that are a little more uh, familiar with him will call his, uh, his first book, which was a, uh, Bobby Fischer's Games of Chess, which included his games from 57-58 U.S. Championship with his annotations and, and the unannotated games from the uh, uh, 59 candidates, or, or 59, yeah, 59 candidates from the Arizona, 58 Arizona, I should say. Uh, so, uh, but he did a lot more writing. He had a column in uh, Chess Life. The column in Boy's Life is, is out, and Russell has a booklet on it. Uh, but uh, his Boy's Life, uh, material, uh, his chess-like material, which was from 6364, his uh, uh, annotations uh, here and there for different uh, European magazines and American publications were all kind of scattered to the wind. So I tried to bring as much of that together in one place and then also uh, put it in some perspective. I mean, uh, uh, he really had carte blanche uh, when he was writing for uh, Chess Life and one of his uh, uh, ongoing uh, series of columns was devoted to uh, the match Steinitz versus Dubois. You know, totally uh, obscure match that, you know, of, of all the world champions, only Bobby would have known about, but he was very excited and thought there was a lot to uh, uh, be a benefit for readers that this match should see the light. So, uh, so yeah, the, the uh, those two books, uh, the, la the last two, uh, the uh, exhibition tours, and Fisher's writings, those are not in Bobby Fisher and his world, uh, just for the fact that the book was already close to 700 pages as is. Uh, they'll be hopefully um, in book format uh, and updated from the Kindle version sometime in the future. I'm working on that now. Uh, but uh, Bobby Fisher and his world, I think is, you know, probably has the broadest audience because it's, uh, there's more prose, there's uh, more to read. And uh, I really wanted to try to, uh, as much as possible, kind of recreate what Fisher's world was like in the uh, 1960s and early 1970s. And I, I have to say, it's it's really, it's it's a, a fantastic work. You know, any Fisher fan is going to love it, but even those who are um, less enamored with him, as, as I have to admit, I am, um, there is so much there to learn. There is so much context and color that it it sort of paints a much more robust picture of Fisher than I think, you know, anyone except his most ardent fans would possibly have any way of knowing. Um, it's, it's, it's really, it's a fantastic work. And anyone who is listening, I definitely recommend you check it out. Um, John, I, I wanted to ask you, what, what did you learn about him that really surprised you in the process of writing this book? Well, one thing that's very clear is that he uh, he was a much different person uh, after the match in Reykjavik. Uh, you know, uh, and I think to a certain extent that could be explained by the fact, you know, maybe that he had achieved his lifelong goal. But I think also it was fame because uh, 
unlike any other world champion, and that includes even Gary Kasparov and Magnus Carlsen, he was so much more famous on a on a huge scale that that you know I don't think any other world champion will ever you know become a household name the way he was. I mean, it's partly uh, just a reflection of who he was and his charisma, but it was also the times. I mean, the fact that there were uh, fewer things competing for people's attention, but also, of course, the uh, the, the Cold War uh, was still at play, and, and so the uh, uh, the interaction between the Soviet Union and the United States that that's kind of in the background of his match with Spassky, and that contributed, I'm sure, to all the various media of the day uh, focusing on the match. Had that not been the case, I don't think it would have gotten nearly as much attention. Uh, so, uh, you know, but if I had to, to put that, to give one concrete example of just how famous he was, he played in the uh, tennis tournament. I write about it in the book. It was uh, held in uh, uh, near Escondido, just north of... You also, it's mentioned in the article, by the way, that you wrote for Chess Life. Okay, yes. So, I mean, just to cut to the chase, how often will a world champion, uh, you know, will Magnus Carlsen be asked for his autograph from... Uh, the equivalent of you know Joe Frazier and Mark Spitz, the great Olympic swimmer, and Marty Lacroix, the great distance runner, or 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 half of the fearsome force in Merlin uh, Merlin Olson and uh, uh, Deacon Jones. I mean, uh, I, I I just don't see that happening. I mean, it's <laughs> different times. Yeah, the, it feels like the equivalent would be something like Magnus Carlsen being asked to be on The Bachelor or something, the, which is totally a bizarre thing to think about. But that's the level of fame that Fisher was dealing with at, at that time. Right. Well, to, to put in perspective, he was the most famous sports star in the United States, if not the world at that time. Maybe, you know, Muhammad Ali accepted. Whereas if you look at Magnus, even in Norway... Uh, there's Karsten Warholm, who just broke the uh, 400 uh, uh, intermediate hurdles uh, record. And uh, there's uh, uh, Jakob uh, Ingelbritsen, who's like, you know, one of the favorites to uh, medal in distance races in Tokyo. Those guys are equally popular in Norway. It's like he's not even the unqualified king of his own country. I'm curious what and, – and you wrote a little bit about this for the, the chess life issue. But I'm, I'm, I'm wonder what – remains to be learned about Fisher? What, what, what are the key stories that still need to be told? Well, I think one thing that would be very interesting would, uh, there's, there's people that definitely can shed more light. One of them would be uh, Bernard Zuckerman. He did an interview with the World Chess Hall of Fame in 2014. And Zuckerman was not only uh, a very strong player, I would say, you know, one of the top half dozen strongest players in the United States to never be a GM. Uh, he was rated in the top 100 in the world for a number of years, but uh, he just didn't play in the necessary tournaments in Europe when you know, norm events were um, much less uh, common. Um, he's one person that definitely can shed some light on on Bobby and his uh, study habits, and uh, you know just what a typical day was like for him. Uh, you know, I know that uh, players nowadays. Uh, you know, they look at Fisher and, you know, it's, it's so, I mean, the match is like, you know, coming up on the 50 year anniversary. So, you know, there's, you know, would the Bobby Fisher that was playing in 1972 beat the top grandmasters now? And, and the answer is, of course, no. But would the Bobby Fisher of 50 years ago, if given six months uh, to study 
uh, and given access to uh, chess base, uh, would he be a, a stronger player than he was back then? I mean, unquestionably so. I mean, I mean, imagine him, you know, he'd be studying like 10 or 12 hours a day and, and happily doing it. And, uh, you know, he'd, be, he'd catch up, you know, and then, then they'd be on equal playing ground in the opening and then it'd be a different, different story. Uh, so I think that uh, in the case of Fisher, uh, that he, he was quite unique. I wouldn't call him the uh, strongest player of all time because I think that you, you have to have a body of work behind you, you know, and he, he stopped playing after Reykjavik. But from 70 to 72, I don't think any other chess player ever came close to dominating his uh, contemporaries the way that Fisher did. Now, as part of this, um, as part of this package that we've put together for the July issue, which includes an excerpt from the book um, about the Ruszewski Fisher match, um, which also includes uh, one of your uh, favorite personal games, uh, a game where you beat uh, Sergei Kudrin. Was it at the 2004 U.S. Championship? Is that correct? That sounds right. Um, we also asked you to do a photo shoot, which um, was a bit out of your comfort zone. But I think anyone who takes a look at the photos uh, will be absolutely stunned by what we came up with. The photographer, uh, Ian Spanier, uh, it turns out he had a personal, re- well, sort of a, he was two degrees of separated from Bobby Fischer. Um can you talk a little bit about that and what it was like to work with Ian? Right. Well, he when he was young, he was mentored by Harry Benson. And of course, uh, Benson was uh, the person that took all the marvelous Fisher's, uh, Fisher photos in the period of 1971-72. Uh, the, I believe uh, he always worked for life, or, or at least that's what he's best associated with, and that is Benson. And uh, so when uh, the Petrosian match was held, uh, Brad Derrick was commissioned to write an article and he did the uh, uh, photos for Fisher. And then he, again, in uh, 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 Reykjavik, he took uh, photos again. And in between when Fisher was at uh, uh, Grossing's uh, resort in uh, uh, north of New York City, uh, he took a lot of Fisher uh, photos there. And he really, obviously, you can see uh, by how relaxed Bobby is that uh, Benson very much gained his trust. And uh, uh, they were they were friends. I think that would be fair to say. And uh, um, so, uh, if you look at uh, uh, some of the photos, I mean, particularly of uh, the photos he took of Bobby with animals, whether it was you know, I think there's one with a dog in Argentina, and there's horses in Argentina and Iceland, and uh, you know, you see Bobby really loved animals, and and. You know, uh, it, it's almost like Benson wasn't there taking the photo. It was, you know, he was just like the fly on the wall. Uh, so those are, you know, Ian was was you know trained by uh, Harry. So any 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 he, those photos look good at all. It's all Ian and none of me. Uh, but that does make me uh, come back to you had asked me like what Fisher uh, uh, mysteries are still out there lurking. Uh, one thing I just recently discovered, like in the last week, is that uh, uh, I had known that uh, there was a, a previous life uh, uh, a feature on Fisher in, uh, that appeared in 1964. And it was with another uh, great uh, life photographer. And in this case, it was uh, Carl uh, Meidens. And uh, I believe I'm pronouncing it correctly. But uh, 
those photos were taken somewhere in 62, maybe in 63, and some of them can, can be found online. Uh, uh, you know, the ones that appeared in the article and maybe a handful of others. But if you go to uh, uh, Google Life Archives online and Google it, you'll find that actually, and perhaps not surprisingly, uh, mines took, you know, maybe like 70 or 80 photos of Fisher, uh, at least the ones that appear there uh, on, in that archive. And they couldn't use all of them in their uh, uh, article, obviously. But they're, they're taken all over New York, Bobby at a baseball game, Bobby playing pinball, Bobby uh, uh, taking the subway, you know, just really classic shots of, of not just Fisher, but of New York of the uh, early 1960s. And they're really, uh, really well done. And so I'm, I'm very curious, like, you know, judging from all the different venues where those photos were taken, it seems like the two of them must have been together for the better part of a week. Uh, just because of the physical distance of some of the places where uh, they, uh, they did the photography. And so keep in mind also that was uh, just, you know, early 62 is the interview with uh, uh, Ralph Ginsburg uh, that Fisher really uh, took exception to. Uh, and yet here he was ready to be, uh, you know, to let his hair down, if you will, and, 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 and go through all these photo shoots. And uh, it seems like Bobby was more comfortable having his picture taken than, than actually doing a, uh, a regular interview. And uh, so I'm curious if any listeners out there know uh, if they've ever, if there were any accounts by Mydens of this, uh, of this photo shoot, uh, because uh, I've not been able to locate any. Well, there you go, listeners. You have homework. Um, this is actually, I think you mentioned this in the, uh, the part of the cover package where, where you talk about Fisher, remaining Fisher mysteries. So, uh, for anyone who is, uh, up for the challenge, definitely take a look at this in our July issue. Um, I guess you can go to Google and look at the, the life archives and you might be able to find some of the photos. And if you can help us identify the places and, uh, shed any light by all means, uh, send a, a note to letters at uschess.org and I'll make sure it gets to John. Um, so yeah, so Ian did it. I mean, the, the photos are gorgeous. Uh, the the one photo of you uh, at the staircase uh, at the Mechanics Institute for me is just, it, I, I wish I could have done two different covers because the cover is just beautiful. Um, but the, that photo itself is, is fantastic. You worked at the Mechanics Institute for many years. Um, how did you end up working there as, as the director of the chess room? And um, looking back at your time there, what do you take away from the experience? Well, I uh, uh, started work in October of 1998, and uh, I was approached at the U.S. Open, uh, which was held a couple months earlier in, uh, in of all places in Hawaii, probably the, the first and only U.S. Open that was uh, held at a resort, and a resort in uh, on the Big Island. And I was approached by uh, Jim Eade, who was the current uh, 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 chess director, and uh, Mark Pinto. Uh, both who subsequently become uh, even uh, better friends. And uh, I knew them already and was, was friends with them at the time. And they offered me the position, and I was greatly honored. Uh, the Mechanics is the oldest uh, continuously operated chess club in the United States. It goes back to the 1850s to the, uh, to the period in, in San Francisco just after the gold rush. And uh, it has a really uh, rich, rich history, uh, uh, you know, San Francisco was a city with under a thousand people before uh, 
a gold was discovered in the late 1840s. And uh, when the gold rush uh, petered out and before silver uh, was discovered in the Comstock, uh, there were all these educated people that traveled all over the world, primarily male, and they, uh, they liked San Francisco, but obviously there was no more gold, so they were going to have to uh, find another way to make ends meet. And so they, 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 they contributed to the city, and they wanted to have uh, some sort of uh, intellectual center where they could uh, keep abreast of all the technical changes that were going on in the world. And so they found this, uh, this institute. It wasn't the first mechanics institute in the world. I think that was in England. And I should take one step back and say mechanics institute. It, it, it's such an archaic term because today uh, we think of mechanics, it's very specialized, you know, somebody that could fix your car perhaps. Uh, but that wasn't the term, it wasn't so restrictive back in the 1850s. It, the idea was that it was uh, uh, any sort of uh, a skilled craftsman or architect, uh, you know, it, 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 it was a very wide-ranging term. And uh, so they, they formed this uh, library, but they also at the same time started this chess club. So, you know, you know being part of that was uh, a great honor, a chess club that all the world champions uh, from uh, Alaska to uh, Asperov, you know, sort of, a, you know, pretty much the entire 20th century, all of them visited the mechanics except for uh, Gary and uh, um, and all the rest were there and in, in some cases on multiple occasions and that included Bobby in 1964. Uh, so it's a, a, a beautiful building. Uh, uh, the, the bottom two floors are, are for the library, which by the way, has a collection of over 2000 uh, chess books. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, I was told people when I was a director, that, you know, even if you don't use a chess room, you know, if you just uh, check out new chess books, which they order a substantial number each year, uh, that would pay your membership uh, dues. And then uh, 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 the fourth floor where the chess club's located is, uh, uh, you know, it's been there, that building since 1909. They had to move from other quarters because their, their building in 1906 was destroyed by the fire. But uh, they had temporary headquarters set up nearby and, and you know, chess players didn't have to uh, wait for a game for very long. Uh, you know, it was a real honor to work there. And I uh, had a number of distinguished colleagues, uh, uh, including uh, grandmasters and U.S. champions, uh, uh, Alexander Malinsky and uh, Nick DeFermian, and uh, uh, U.S. junior champion, uh, close champion, uh, Paul Whitehead, uh, but if I had to name one employee that really kind of typified the mechanics for me, it was, uh, I believe, uh, Steve uh, Bradwine. He uh, uh, was rated in the top 50 players in the United States in the uh, mid-1960s, but he didn't really like to play in tournaments that much. But he was an extremely strong blitz player. He uh, uh, played uh, Nydorf, who was a great blitz player in his day, uh, a session of mechanics in the early 70s, and they played like a dozen games and broke even. And uh, when Fisher uh, visited San Francisco in the early 80s, uh, Brandwine scored about, you know, 20, 25% in three-minute games. So, you know, he was, you know, as a blitz player, he was probably closer to 25, 2600. Uh, but he was also incredibly well-read. And so, uh, you know, whether it was uh, just uh, literature or history or chess, uh, 
you know, Google's useful, but but Brandwine was sometimes better. He was more accurate and more to the point and uh, uh, could give you the information you need, like on, on the turn of the dime. So uh, it was always really a pleasure uh, to come to work at the mechanics, not just because of a great chess community at the club, but also because of Steve there. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, after 20 years, I was, I was happy to, you know, have done my service and uh, uh, the, the, the people that have it running it now and Nick and uh, Paul are still part of the team are uh, Abel uh, Talamantes and uh, Judith Sare. And the two of them have done a, a fantastic job, particularly during uh, COVID times. Uh, San Francisco and the Mechanics was one of the great uh, online uh, centers. They had like you know constant online tournaments going on. So I'm I'm glad I passed the baton because, uh, as you know in particular, John, uh, uh, technology is not necessarily my strong point. It it can be tricky for for many of us. Yes. So um, yeah, no. It's um, I actually I got to play in a couple of those tournaments online through the Mechanics and uh, it's tough. It, it's it's uh it was very helpful uh to to have an outlet like that during covid yes um now before you were at the mechanics you were uh, among other things working as i think an assistant editor for inside chess that's true uh, i i was involved uh, for the duration i was on site from uh, the uh, late 1980s when the magazine started in january of 88 until uh, the magazine ended it 2000, I moved to San Francisco in 19, 1998, but I still was uh, a regular member of the staff. Uh, that was a wonderful experience. Uh, you know, Yasser Sarawan, I mean, if you had to pick one person, I mean, it, it would be almost impossible to pick one p- person, you know, the most important person for chess in the United States, you know, outside of, of Rex and Jeannie Sinkfield. But if I had to pick one that was a player, uh, I would pick uh, Yasser. I mean, uh, you know, not just for the fact that he was such a, a strong uh, a player, you know, who was twice a candidate for the world championship, uh, but also that he contributed to the game in, in so many other ways. And uh, whether it was in get it, getting uh, the fel- folks at Microsoft involved in hosting U.S. championships in the uh, early 2000s, or uh, it was putting together Inside Chess. And, and there was the magazine, and there was also the book publishing side of it. And... Uh, you know, by 2000, of course, with the internet, uh, you know, it was a little bit, uh, you know, it was more or less impossible to continue as a regular print magazine. But you have to realize that, uh, you know, with Chess Life already and with uh, a lot of other states having their own magazines, you know, and with New and Chess having already started in the mid 80s, uh, the field was pretty crowded. And, uh, but Yasser, uh, he, he, he did a very good thing. And, uh, uh, and I have a lot of fond memories of that. We had one guy that was the uh, editor of that magazine, uh, Mike Frenette, who uh, passed away around 2004. And he edited every single page of the magazine, which was coming out twice a month for most of, the, of its history. And, you know, the issues were like 32 pages. So it was like, and, and I must say, yes, sir never had very many ads in the magazine. So it was like, he was producing like, you know, somewhere between 60 to 100 pages of, of you know, editing uh, copies. And you as an editor, John, know how it isn't, it isn't just doing it for one year or, or you know, for, for, for one issue or six issues or, or six months or a year. It's doing it for year after year. And uh, 
he was he was a, a real professional. I think that by page count, even though Chess Review went from uh, the 1930s to the 1960s, I think from 33 to 69, I want to say. See, that's, I think that's right, yeah. Uh, I want to I'm. I think I calculated by the actual page count uh, inside. I mean, he might have he might have produced more pages than than Horowitz. I'm not sure about that. You know, I might be mistaken, but uh, it appeared so much more frequently, and the the issues in many cases were larger, so that it, it compensated for their shorter greater duration of the publication. But at any rate, he, you know, Herman Helms, you know, he produced uh, American Chess Bulletin for. Oh, almost 60 years, just under, I think. Uh, but those are like Helms, Horowitz, and Frenette. They're probably like the three uh, uh, Iron Men, if you will, of, uh, of chess publishing. Although I should mention one other. Uh, it's not maybe well-known outside of uh, the Pacific Northwest, but uh, Northwest Chess. Which I subscribe to, by the way. Okay, well, you're, you're a good man. It's... Uh, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho, and occasionally British Columbia. Uh, that magazine has been published monthly since 1947. And the current editor, uh, Jeff Rowland, is like the, will soon break the record as the longest-serving editor, I think, like, it's like 13 or 14 years. So uh, I think that there's a great place for, uh, you know, electronic magazines, but I, I also, I like, I like to have a magazine in my hand as well. Yeah, I um, you know, I I got I I was a subscriber to Inside Chess as a youth, um, and I think I've got two complete runs uh, sitting here at my house. For me, um, quite often when I think about the sorts of things that I want to see in Chess Life, I think about things that I saw in Inside Chess, and uh, you, you guys did amazing work. Uh, with that magazine, and it's still—I mean, it still stacks up against anything uh, that has been put out, you know, before or after. Uh, so, yeah, uh, kudos to you guys. You really—you knocked it out of the park with that magazine. Well, thank you. Yeah, I would—I would say my favorites in that in Inside Chess were uh, Yasser's annotations, which uh, you know he he juggled the uh, the ball very well, so that the annotations are are interesting for stronger players, but don't talk so high that uh, lower-rated players can appreciate them as well. And I also, uh, Dr. Minev's uh, tactics, tactics columns were always a pleasure to read. And then uh, I would say that the, the in-game columns that were done by Alexander Bourne, those sort of things don't really uh, date. I mean, the information is still uh, very, very useful. But those are three things that immediately stick out in my mind. I, um, I think I actually took the, you know, th- there's a DVD available from... Um I think it was originally available from Hannon Russell. Um, I'm not sure who is selling it now, but there's a DVD with all of the issues on it. And I actually went ahead and made myself uh, uh, like a standalone PDF of the um, of the Baburin uh, Endgame Lab uh, and printed it out uh, because the the material there was just so good. It is. It is. He's a really good writer. Uh, you know, maybe not so widely known, but uh, his book on called Winning Pawn Structures that was put out by uh, Batsford, oh gosh, over 20 years ago. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit misleading t- title. It was really like uh, 
a complete examination of isolated queen pawn structures, whether you know from the opening, from the middle game, from even into the end game, uh, looking at all different plans for both sides, uh, really well annotated games. Uh, it went out of print relatively early, uh, was never reprinted, but I hear uh, from Alex that the book and a revised uh, version of it will be appearing uh, this coming year. And uh, I think Quality Chess is going to be the publisher. So they're the best. So I- You're breaking news here. I had no idea. Oh, yeah. Is, yeah. I, mean, I hope I'm not giving away any trade secrets. But uh, quality- nope, nobody listens to the podcast. Don't worry. Well, quality Chess uh, really produces <laughs> uh, 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 you know, brilliant. I think they are the best publishing house of all time. And it isn't just that they uh, produce a lot of good books, although that obviously is a starting point. But also the care they take, and the books are always very well proofread. They always have really good indexes. And even the, they take attention to the, the paper that the books are published on and uh, the binding. It's all first rate. Uh, you know, you feel like, you know, when you invest in one of their books, you know, you've, uh, you, you've made an investment for, for the long term. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of books, um, you have written quite a few uh, over the years. Um, books on some lesser-known North American players like Frank Anderson. Um, I'm going to blow these next two names because I believe they're Latvian. Uh, Elmars Zemgalis. That's right. And Olaf Ulvestad. Well, Ulvestad's actually not Latvian. He uh, He's a Norwegian, but he was born in the United States. He's of Norwegian heritage. And uh, uh, Ulvestad grew up in Tacoma. And uh, Zemgalis as you alluded to, uh, was from born on Latvia. He uh, had a very distinguished career uh, playing in uh, Germany uh, immediately after the Second World War. But in the early 1950s, he uh, uh, found he and his wife uh, uh, found themselves in uh, Seattle. And so that's where these two, uh, that is uh, Ovestad and uh, Zimgalitz, that's where they, they come together. Uh, yeah, I, I majored in history at the uh, University of Washington, and uh, in particular, I had one uh, professor, uh, Carl Solberg, who unfortunately passed away much too early, and he was a really uh, uh, inspiration. He was always very curious and, and uh, uh, just bursting with energy and, and always wanting to uh, try to, uh, uh, you know, to really dig deep and, and, and try to get as much information and then give it a lot of thought and then put pen to paper. And so uh, I really, uh, uh, I always enjoyed his classes immensely. So, you know, obviously I didn't become a a real historian, but in the chess world, uh, I tried to uh, put my knowledge to use and uh, and tried, you know, to create lots of books that would be brilliant bestsellers that would sell millions of copies and make me a billionaire. And it worked perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, no. You you write chess books because you enjoy doing it. I don't think... Anybody that has any other motivations is, is probably, with the exception of somebody like uh, my friend Jeremy Silman, or you know, uh, who, who's you know, you know, had books that really, really uh, hit the sweet spot and found a wide audience. Uh, I think you know your your primary motivation should just be that you enjoy doing. It. And and I think that definitely comes through your books. I mean, the the you know the books on on these these players. I think uh, the two volumes on Rubinstein, uh, which still are. Um, you know, the, the standard resource uh, for anyone who's interested in Rubenstein's career. 
um, you know, you, you've also got some opening works. Um, in fact, I, I think I told you this at one point when we spoke, um, it must've been like 1990 or 1991, you were at the the Manhattan chess club and you signed a, a copy of your book on the Moran defense for me, the, that you put out with, um, uh, chess enterprises, I think. You know, I completely forgot, um, chess enterprises, I think many of your listeners may not know about, but, uh, it was, uh, 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 a one-man shop. Um, actually, it was a one-couple shop. It was uh, the late Bob Dudley, and uh, he was a, a professor by day, uh, but in the evenings, he would put together uh, uh, books, and uh, uh, his wife oftentimes helped him in the physical production of them uh, because, uh, you know, this was uh, before desktop publishing. This was before, uh, well, before everything, it seemed like. And, uh, you know, when I... Uh, sent him the manuscript, uh, it was, uh, I believe it was, a, it was a handwritten manuscript. It sounds like something from like medieval monks. Maybe it was typed, but I'm not so sure about that. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, completely different world, uh, uh, to put it uh, mildly. Uh, the one opening book that I have the most fondest memories of is the one that I did on the Accelerated Dragon with uh, Jeremy Silman. And there were two editions of that. And, uh, the second one uh, uh, was, uh, which was essentially a completely different book, uh, came out in the late 1990s. And that book is uh, still generating royalties, which is very scary. I mean, I, I think uh, there should be probably a, a date stamp for opening books the way there is for food at the grocery store. Yeah, it's... Um that is one of, I think, one of those books that still, you know, I, I still people's, I, I see people talking about on the internet or um, I, I, I still see it, uh, you know, recommended by people. Um, your your book also a strategic opening repertoire, uh, which I think saw, saw a couple editions as well. Um, right. The second one though was actually, it was updated by Carson Hansen for Hannah Russell. But uh, I mean, both of these books, incredibly successful, um, very influential uh, with with certain segments of the chess crowd, uh, so yeah, it's the when you, know, you spoke you spoke about people writing uh, chess books because they enjoy it and because they care about it, and I think that that comes through in just about everything you've written. Um, you know, certainly the books that I have sitting on my shelf over there, uh, it, it's evident that that you put yourself into the work, um, which is you know about as high praise as anybody can give anybody when it comes to writing. Um, I, I feel like, you know, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about, I mean, we are going to talk about you as a player in a moment, but I, I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't uh, talk about your work as a, as a U.S. team captain, because I, I feel like a lot of people probably don't really understand what that entails. Um, how did you get started doing this? And, and what does it look like on a day-to-day basis to be at the Olympiad and, and captaining a team with, you know, with Fabiano and Wesley and Hikaru and... Uh, and the whole crew? Well, I can tell you how it started. In uh, 1986, I was in Estes Park, uh, Colorado, which is uh, uh, right on the border of Rocky Mountain National Park. And I was invited uh, one evening to dinner by uh, Yasser Sarawan and Lubash Kowalik. And you have to recall that the uh, 1986 Olympiad was held in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates. And when that venue was uh, proposed to FIDE, uh, 
in must have been probably in like 84, 85. Uh, people were not real excited. I mean, they were excited, but they had mixed feelings because on the one hand, it would be great to have an event in that part of the world. I mean, yes, there had been a couple of Olympiad, there had been an Olympiad in uh, Israel in 64, uh, and there had been another one in 76, but, you know, not in the Arab world. And uh, obviously, you know, even at that time, the uh, Arab Emirates were, um, you know, quite well to do. And so the thought was that this would be a very uh, well-funded uh, Olympiad. But there were some reservations because they didn't have any record uh, uh, at all, really, of organizing chess events. So that there was a certain amount of apprehension there. But there was also another worry, and that was, of course, would Israel be able to participate? And uh, there were assurances given uh, by the UAE that you know, there would be an exception made because you know, at that time, uh, Arab countries didn't allow Israeli sportsmen to come into their countries. And so they said, oh, don't, don't worry, there's going to be an exception here, we're going to let them come in. And the Israeli delegate to FIDE at the time, of all things, his name is Israel, Israel Gelfer. He uh, said, you know, we've got it all worked out. Don't worry. Everything's cool from the point of the Israeli Chess Federation. It's not a problem. You should all plan to participate. It's going to be a great event. So flash forward, and it's the, uh, it's like a few months before the Olympiad. And now it's become apparent that the Israelis will not be able to participate. And the question is what to do because the U.S. Chess Federation had made a commitment to participate. Players had set aside uh, uh, their schedules so that they would play, and uh, it uh, there was a lot of soul searching. And uh, some players, uh, I remember Lev Albert uh, chose not to participate. Uh, I believe uh, Joel Benjamin was another. I think Ines Rilov might have also declined her invitation. I'm not positive about that, but. Uh, uh, you know, you know, as, as a matter of principle, they thought, you know, this this is not something we want to get involved with. Uh, so, I tell this backstory because when I went to the uh, dinner with Yasser and with uh, uh, Lubash, it was just very recent news that uh, Lev Albert and Joel Benjamin wouldn't be playing. And I should go back and say that this was also at a time when there were very few. Uh, uh, players in the United States from the former Soviet Union. It was almost, you know, 99%, you know, guys at the top were uh, were born and bred in the U.S., if you will, uh, or had long lived in the U.S. Uh, there were a few exceptions. There was uh, Anatoly Lane and Lina Chamkovich and, of course, Albert. Uh, but uh, but there weren't very many. You know, all, all that would change in the early 1990s when the floodgates would open and we would, you know, get this really welcome infusion of, of, of talent. But uh, uh, so so Lubash, he looks at me and he says, you know, as we're eating, he says, uh, what do you think about uh, Dubai? And I think I about dropped my uh, slice of pizza and I said, uh, uh, oh my, my I, I was kind of at a loss for words. And uh, Lubash, who had a tremendously uh, good sense of humor, immediately understood what was happening. He realized that I, I was maybe rated like 20, 22nd or 25th, somewhere in that area in the US. And he could realize that I thought that suddenly, like, you know, 
15, 20 people had declined their invitations. And then all of a sudden, there was a, a, a spot on the U.S. Olympiad team waiting for me. Uh, and he started laughing. <laughs> it was quite humorous. Uh, and, you know, I said, we're not that desperate. Don't worry. Uh, but we are looking for a team captain. And uh, uh, previous to this, uh, to 1986, the uh, captain had been chosen for the U.S. teams by a variety of methods. Sometimes uh, perhaps the players had a preference. Uh, sometimes uh, the U.S. Chess Federation uh, suggested somebody uh, on a, at least one occasion, the American Chess Federation did. Uh, but, but in general, it wasn't as clear as it has been since 1986. Since then, uh, the way it works is very simple. The U.S. teams are chosen by a rating formula. It's very uh, uh, con concrete criteria. There's no selection committee the way there is in other countries. Everybody knows where they stand. Uh, the formula takes into account their, their current USCF rating, their current FIDE rating, and uh, the two ratings uh, going back 12 months to try to strike a balance between the recent form and having a you know, body of work, not just a, a sudden rush at the last moment. And uh, once that team's selected, the players select who will be their, their captain. And, and now, of course, they also choose who will be their coach. And uh, uh, the system is such that... Um, Although I've been captain many times, I've not been captain all the time. Uh, you know, each time the composition of the team might be somewhat different, and they choose who they think will help their team achieve the best result. And so, for example, in uh, uh, 1998, uh, Larry Christensen was the captain. The team was playing in Alista. And just as, as in Dubai, that team was actually in first place before the last round. Uh, they ended up winning silver, but it was a brilliant result, and Larry did an exceptional job. So I think that, uh, 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 you know, for every group of players, there can be the right person to be the captain, and I think in, in, in 1998, Larry was definitely the right person for that job. Uh, in terms of what the, uh, the captain's required to do, that's changed very much over the years. Uh, I can still recall that when I first got the job in 1986, this was really, I mean, there were some people, maybe Gary Kasparov was using chess base at the time, but, uh, you know, it was a really primitive version. And, and most players in the world, that was not their, their thing uh, by far. And so, but there was a publication called uh, Tournament Chess. And uh, people probably laugh now uh, that weren't around then, but there was actually a, a, a book that would appear on a quarterly basis and it would have all the game scores of all the tournaments that had an average FIDE rating of, say, like 2,400 uh, higher. Prim these were primarily round-robin tournaments, but there were some strong Swisses as well. And that's all it would be. It would just be a cross table and the games. And this book sold like hotcakes at the time because there was no real quick way to have this sort of uh, information otherwise. And... So my job in Estes Park was to sit in front of a Xerox machine for like six hours a day for several days, uh, Xeroxing every single page in those books twice. And then once I was finished with that, cutting up uh, each page, each individual game, and then making uh, individual folders for teams. So there would be uh, Bulgaria, 
and uh, there would be the players that played for their team as white and as black. And uh, uh, it was tedious work. I mean, I was glad by 1990, I think I stopped in Hamburg before the uh, uh, Olympiad in uh, Novi Sad. And still computers, people didn't have laptop computers, but I was able to get a printout from chess base of all the games for a fee, of course. Uh, and so I just had to schlep that down. But uh, that was like cutting edge stuff at the time. It was only, you know, uh, by the mid nineties that, you know, people started bringing laptops to uh, tournaments, you know, I mean, on a, you know, that it sort of became the standard, if you will. Uh, so that sort of part of my job has really ended. You know, helping the team prepare in that respect, you know, I mean, nobody needs that anymore. Uh, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, what duties are essential for a captain? Well, there's one job that's absolutely uh, paramount, and that is turning in the team lineup each day. And it used to be there were four players and two reserves. Now it's a little bit simpler to choose the lineup because you have four players and only one reserve. Uh, but still, you know, you need to turn in the lineup each day. It used to be you would actually uh, uh, be given a sheet of paper and you would check off who was playing and you would physically bring that piece of paper to the tournament hall where the arbiter was and then he would uh, uh, gather up all these slips of paper. Of course, those days are long gone. Now everything's just done electronically. Uh, but that's not such a recent... I mean, that's probably only changed, I would say, maybe in the last half dozen years that... Um, doing everything electronically is sort of the standard. But selecting the team lineup uh, every day is critical. And uh, uh, that's sort of a collaborative process between the team captain and the players. Uh, and at least it is on the US team. Uh, to give you one example of how that works uh, in uh, the Olympiad in uh, 2018 in uh, uh, Batumi, uh, we lost a very close match to Poland, uh, a match that we could very easily have won. And we were playing brilliantly up to that point in the Olympiad. And I think by all objective standards had actually performed much better than we had the previous Olympiad, where of course we won gold. And so in this particular case, uh, uh, you know, we lost this match and all of a sudden what looked like the a pretty clear chance for goal became more complicated. And we were essentially going to still play the same teams that we would have played otherwise, Armenia and China, had we drawn or won this match. Uh, so that's, you know, that's always a little hard because, you know, you, you'd want the extra uh, point in the scoring system. Uh, but we didn't have that. And uh, then the question was, who would we rest? And uh, Hikaru Nakamura Gosh, I mean, the number of days that he's rested since he first came on the team in 2006 in Turin, I could count on one hand. I mean, he's been a real Ironman, as Godakomsky was in his time as well. Uh, you, know, you, you know, we didn't have that many world-class players for the U.S. team, so they, you put them in the lineup every day. I mean, it's not only good that they're playing, but also it allows all the players below them to play one board lower. And so it was really... Uh, a hard decision, you know, you know, Hikaru lost against the Polish player and, uh, you know, should we take him out of the lineup or not? And, uh, uh, you know, you know, especially when, you know, you're, you only have two matches left. So, uh, that involves a lot of consultation with the team. 
And but ultimately, the captain has to make the decision. And of course, uh, if, if things go well, you know, I would give the credit to the players. If things don't go so well, I, I'd say it's more the captain's uh, responsibility. But in this case, I, we were really aided by the fact that uh, Sham Shankin was in really good form. He would end up having to play on board three. He did, and he won the he won his game. It was the only decisive game of the match, and so. That made it a lot easier knowing that Sam would be given that responsibility going in. Uh, and then also, it was really important that uh, Ray Robson has been such a reliable performer for our teams because one of the hardest things I think to do in, in, in chess or in Olympiads or what have you is the difference from an individual tournament is sometimes if you're a reserve player, you might have to rest for a number of rounds. And then sort of like a baseball player, you have to come off the bench like a pinch hitter and all of a sudden you have to step up to play and you haven't had the benefit of having, you know, gotten into a rhythm, having played a number of days previously. But Ray, who has played on the U.S. national team since 2000, 2009, 2010 in Turkey and burst with the world team was his, his debut when he was like maybe like 15 years old. He's been... Uh, a very key uh, uh, player for our team, and, and so he stepped up and and, and you know he, he he played very well against Ami and and, and and did his job and helped and helped uh, so that when Sam won the match, we, we won that match and we were very well positioned to play for you know gold or silver going to the last round. So choosing the lineups another responsibility for the captain. Another is just sort of doing whatever is responsible for uh, making sure that the players can just focus on their games themselves. And uh, I've been very fortunate that uh, all of our players have always been very professional and very friendly, and that makes a big difference. You might think that's just a, a fait accompli. I mean, you're playing on a team, obviously you're going to all pull together, but I can name you a, another, a number of, of teams over the years that had lots of great players, but, but somehow when you put them together, it didn't really, you know, it didn't gel. It didn't work out together. And I feel very uh, grateful that, that that's never been the case with the U.S. team. So we are almost at an hour, so I don't want to keep, I don't want to keep you too much longer. But I, I do need to ask you about your own chess game because, you know, for all of these different things you've done, you're, you're a pretty strong chess player. I mean, you've been rated over 2,500 USCF. Um, at, at one point, what was the highest national ranking you think you've made? Just out of curiosity. Well, the, uh, I would say it was probably May of 1990 because that was when my USCF rating for a very short time went over 2,600. I was 2,601. And so, uh, of course, if you go to the US uh, MSA and you look at the ratings, they only go back to September of 1991. But I still have that rating something <laughs> for uh, May of 1990. And uh, I think I even put a scan of it once in the mechanics newsletter so that if somehow there was a fire at my home, I would still have proof that I actually <laughs> made it over, but for a moment. Uh, and that probably put me maybe in the top 20 or, or, or 22, 24. Because keep in mind then that, uh, as I said, that that was before all these, you know, you know, really strong players, you know, Alex Malinsky, Gregory Kaidana, Alex Shabalov, uh, Igor Novikov, Alexander Golden. I mean, I could go on. You know, a lot, lot of really great players have done much to raise the level of play in the United States. Uh, this is before they arrive. So it's a, 
<laughs> little different situation. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I always enjoy playing and uh, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, maybe not in the immediate near future because I'm still trying to finish a few projects. And I, I realize that I'm a person that does better if I focus on like one thing at a time. I'm not a, the world's greatest multitasker. So I want to get these books out of the way, but I'm, I'm thinking that both of them, since a lot of them were already in ebook form, it just needs to take some tweaking and add new information uh, that you know, hopefully they'll be done before the end of the year. And then, then no more books, I think. <laughs> I said what I have to say, and I'll be able to focus just on uh, just learning more about the game because there's so many tools now that weren't available when I was growing up, uh, whether it's chessable or it's online uh, competition or, uh, you know, as a rush sort of drills or uh, also just fact of the matter is there's a lot more good books today than there ever has been. So there's all those things. And uh, believe me, there's a lot I don't know about chess. That is for sure. If nothing else. Uh, and so I'm looking for, you know, just, uh, just studying chess and uh, learning more and playing and, uh, you know, taking it from there. All right. Well, before I let you go, I, I need to ask you some questions. I've, I've started doing a, a feature at the end of uh, each podcast uh, based on uh, James Lipton's questionnaire from Inside the Actors Studio, if you've ever seen that. No. Um, so James Lipton uh, was an acting coach. I don't know if he's still alive. I, I For some reason, I thought he might have passed. But uh, he had this TV show called Inside the Actors Studio. Um, and at the end of it, he would ask his interviewee uh, a set of questions that was – inspired by Bernard Pivot's uh, questions in, uh, in French, uh, his, his questions that were in French, uh, and that originally came from questionnaires, self-questionnaires by Marcel Proust. So what I've done is I've taken Lipton's version and reworked a few of the questions that might not work for a podcast format. For example, there was one about uh, a favorite profanity, which, uh, you know, I certainly know what mine is, but it's not really appropriate for, for this venue. So I've got 10 questions um, and uh, just okay. riff on whatever comes into your mind first, if that works. All right. Question number one. What is your favorite word? Oh, gosh. <laughs> favorite word? Uh, checkmate? No. Uh, uh, no, I, I'm not Bobby Fisher. I don't like to see my opponents squirm. I, I, of course, like everyone else, I like to do well, but uh, I don't take any pleasure from your discomfort. Uh, 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 what be, uh, let buyer beware. Uh, 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 I'm not sure. Gosh, uh, I'm not sure if I have a single favorite word. I'll take a phrase, but, uh, so buyer beware, caveat emptor. Okay. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think especially, uh, uh, you know, living in the United States, uh, I think you should, uh, to borrow an old Armenian proverb, you should measure the cloth seven times before you cut it. What is your least favorite word? Two words, fast food. What is your dream of happiness? I'm sitting on the couch, reading a good book with my cat laying on me. Towards what faults do you feel most indulgent? Uh, myself or others? Uh, either. Either. Uh, not being proficient with technology. Who would you like to see featured on a new banknote? Uh, a chess player or somebody else? or, or, or Anybody. Anybody. Oh, God. 
And it could be any country either, uh, any country. Oh, gosh. Uh, so you've got lots to choose from. Well, somehow it seems kind of, you know, I mean, when I think of the people that are on the U.S. currency, I think of, you know, like Washington. Well, he's the founder of the country. And he's, he, I, I, I like him being on the money. And Lincoln, that makes uh, perfect sense for, for me as well. And, you know, Grant, you know, also the Civil War and, uh, and also, you know, a guy who, when he's, uh, he was dying near the end of his life and his family was really in not such an easy situation, he, he penned his memoirs. Uh, he seems like a stand-up guy to me as well. Uh, but like Andrew Jackson might like, never struck the iron was on it. So I would replace him and I would replace him with somebody different because there's so many other great people in our country that uh, are not represented. Uh, so but that's tough to have just one person. So, I mean, maybe Martin Luther King would be a good choice, but there's a lot of other good choices too, but I'll, I'll go with him for right now. What opening do you love? Well, I would say uh, Night F3 Fall by C4, which is Ready or, uh, or The Accelerated Dragon. The slot. Predictable. <laughs> what opening do you hate? Uh, you know, I never wrap my hands around like, you know, certain openings like, uh, like the Latvian Gambit, for example, you know, uh, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to play F5 and exposure king to a direct attack, uh, and not to develop a piece. And yet, you know, people play it and it's, it's not, it's not good, but it's not awful either. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, that one I'm going to have to choose more than one example. Okay, if it, if you'd asked me like you know, twenty years ago, I, I was probably a decent travel agent, but I suspect all chess players are and still were and still are. But that I'm not sure if that profession really exists too much anymore. Uh, maybe for some customized tours, but outside of that, I think everybody buys their own tickets themselves. Uh, I would say that uh, I would have made a reasonably good detective. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of uh, film noir and particularly uh, film noir, like whether it's in books or movies in, uh, based out of L.A. Uh, or New York. But, uh, but I think also I would be a pretty good dog walker. Ooh, I like that. Get your exercise, too, especially in the Bay Area with those hills. Yes. Um, what profession would you absolutely not like to do? Oh, I, I don't think I would ever want to work in like, you know, it's like a, well, let's say, is it like what I wouldn't want to do or wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't be, it wouldn't work at all. Like if you asked me to be, like, be a mechanic and fix your car, I'd be like totally hopeless. So that would just be one example of many where I would not be of any use at all. I'm afraid I'm pretty specialized. Last question. If a uh, Judeo-Christian heaven awaits, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Well, I would sum up all my religious beliefs in, uh, you know, in one sentence. I, I think, you know, uh, live by the golden rule. Uh, so uh, uh, I think all the rest, I think was like some rabbi said, all the rest is commentary. Uh, that would be, uh, oh, is it Hillel, Rabbi? Uh, I think it was Hillel, yeah. Seems to me he was spot on. Yeah. Uh, so I would expect that, uh, you know, uh, that 
I'm, there, I've met a lot of really wonderful chess people in my life, and I'm sure many of them will be present here. Okay. All right. Well, John Donaldson, uh, I appreciate you taking your time on this Friday afternoon to speak to me. Um, and uh, yes, for all the listeners who've made it this far, please do yourself a favor. Check out our July issue. Uh, lots of good material, but really, um, I, I think uh, John just absolutely knocked his his contributions out of the park. And uh, our new magazine design, too, by our uh, art director, Corey Kennedy, uh, really complements John's work. So uh, check it out. And uh, John, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, we appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return next month on the first Tuesday, when we will again be making a deep dive into the pages of Chess Life magazine. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button, where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you're already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Thank you and good chess. Chess.